Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 13th of December 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News, your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. It doesn't get any better, does it? No, it doesn't. No. So let's uh, let's bring it on screen. Uh, we uh, we were yesterday uh, at level three. Uh, Varus contained our lesson one partial lifting of lockdown is what the uh, graphic from the government said. Uh, but we've now moved to level four, so the virus is no longer contained. Uh, Omicron has escaped. Uh, R is greater than one. Hospitals, though, are not quite overwhelmed yet. So we're back into some form of lockdown is, is what the definition says. Now, of course, uh, we all know to what degree that is. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, what do we have in the mainstream press? South Africa records fewer severe COVID cases in Omicron wave from the Financial Times. We have South African doctors see early signs Omicron variant is milder than Delta. Uh, from, we have Reuters here. South Africa says no, no signal of increased Omicron severity yet. And the World Health Organization, uh, Omicron spreads, but severe cases remain low in South Africa. So the first question before we come on to the BBC, David, is uh, where's the justification? Ah, well, the BBC covered this. Um, the justification is, you see, the South African information suggests there's nothing to worry about. But you see, in South Africa, quite a lot of people either had COVID or were vaccinated. And that's not like Britain be uh, because, well, reasons. And so it might be much worse. And and they also said the South Africans, the population is younger than Britain. So because we're all old and frail, um, it might be worse here. I know, I know we've got no evidence for that, but th that's the policy. I see. So, well, let's come on to the BBC then and, uh, and give us your, cover your thoughts on their coverage of this. Well, the BBC were spectacular here because uh, they had to go to Dr. Emma Hodcroft, epidemiologist at the University of Bern, because I don't think they've got anyone left in Britain who can actually do this stuff with a straight face anymore. So she said, even if Omicron is less harmful, it seems to be moving so quickly that if a lot of people in the UK got it at the same time, so that's, that's two ifs so far, uh, we could still risk the probability measure in there, overwhelming the NHS, which is already stressed from Delta. So, uh, but David, hold on a second. Hold on a second. On Friday, on Friday, we showed the BBC publishing a graph based on Public Health England data, or NHS England data rather, which showed that actually the number of people in hospital with COVID uh, labelled as COVID is actually relatively small compared to the overall hospital population. So, how does that fit with that uh, that quote? Well, this is why you have the advantage of going to someone from the University of Bern, because she doesn't necessarily know. I mean, how would she know at what oh, point But, but that's NHS... not the point. The BBC published both of those. Yes. Oh, well, the BBC published a graph which we'll just come to in the same piece that I took this from. Uh, consistency is, is, uh, would appear to be unforgivable in the BBC, Mike. Okay. So that brings us on to Sajid Javid. Right. So he says... Better to act now than to wait for deaths. So that sounds quite scary. Um, so that, that, but to translate that, um, when he said it, um, Alec Baldwin has, has killed more people than Omicron. It might be a tie now. Um, 
and we're going to act and we're going to be alarmist and we're going to act and we're not going to wait for the evidence because to wait for the evidence, to wait for the science, uh, that would be unforgivable, Mike. Uh, we have to act first uh, without thinking because fear seems to be this, the summary. But if you look at the figures from the same piece from the BBC, um, it doesn't look very frightening. Here we see uh, there were 40, almost 40,000 uh, hospitalised patients with a positive COVID-19 test um, um, I, I, almost a year ago. There is now 7,000 and falling. doesn't look a very scary graph. It doesn't seem to match the hype. No, indeed. Indeed. So uh, what have we got then? At the moment, we've got a situation where, Brian, uh, all, all the pressure is being placed on, uh, on people that are double jabbed. They've got to get the, the we're going to come on to this booster. in a second, they've got to get the booster. Um, but as for the unjabbed, um, that seems to be all about marginalization uh, and, uh, and shame. Yep. And we're not going to get access yeah. to certain things. So this is correct. There's, 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 two different, there's two different lines being, being uh, followed here. Um, very much one of fear for those who are willing to be frightened. And for those who are not willing to be frightened, then we're trying to, we're trying to paint those as um, stupid um, or, or evil. That seems to be the, the, the range of emotions that they're playing for. Yes. Yeah, playing on emotions. Uh, um, applied political psychology, I think, is the thing. Now, I have to admit and this, that... Uh, this, no, no, we're, we're, so, you're not... It's Brian's ne shout next. Sorry, beg your pardon. Okay, that's fine. Um, my, my mistake. Uh, just to say to our audience that Mike Robinson did try and protect the UK column audience because I was very keen to get in a clip of Boris Johnson speaking to the nation, and uh, we're going to do that. Let's just bring this uh, slide up on the screen first of all because, of course, many people... Um, got a tweet from Boris last night. This is what it looked like uh, because he, he, if we can just pop that on screen, because uh, he was talking about booster jabs. And um, I did uh, just take one still from it, but an unkempt, scruffy uh, prime minister delivering a speech which he clearly really didn't care about. He was just regurgitating the words. And I just felt what an appalling reflection that the nation should have to suffer this man supposedly advising us. But as we're going to see, is it Boris Johnson advising us or is it somebody else? First of all, let's have a listen to what he said. This is just an excerpt from the seven minute clip that he made the nation suffer last night. Good evening. Over the past year, we have shown that vaccination is the key to beating COVID and that it works. The UK was the first country in the world to administer a vaccine. We delivered the fastest rollout in Europe and we've begun the fastest booster camp campaign too, with over half a million jabs delivered yesterday alone. And these achievements, made possible by the extraordinary efforts of our NHS, including thousands of GPs and volunteer vaccinators, have literally saved countless lives and livelihoods in this country. But I need to speak to you 
this evening because I'm afraid we're now facing an emergency in our battle with the new variant, Omicron. And we must urgently reinforce our wall of vaccine protection to keep our friends and loved ones safe. Earlier today, the UK's four chief medical officers raised the COVID alert level to four, its second highest level, because of the evidence that Omicron is doubling here in the UK every two to three days. And we know from bitter experience how these exponential curves develop. No one should be in any doubt. There is a tidal wave of Omicron coming. And I'm afraid it is now clear that two doses of vaccine are simply not enough to give the level of protection we all need. But the good news is that our scientists are confident that with a third dose, a, a booster dose, we can all bring our level of protection back up. I know there will be some people watching who will be asking whether Omicron is less severe than previous variants and whether we really need to go out and get that booster. And the answer is yes, we do. Do not make the mistake of thinking Omicron can't hurt you, can't make you and your loved ones seriously ill. These measures will help slow the spread of Omicron. But we must go further and get boosted now. If you haven't yet had a vaccine at all, then please get yourself at least some protection with a jab as quickly as possible. If you've already had your booster, encourage your friends and family to do the same. We're a great country. We have the vaccines to protect our people. So let's do it. Let's get boosted now. Get boosted now for yourself, for your friends and your family. Get boosted now to protect jobs and livelihoods across this country. Get boosted now to protect our NHS, our freedoms and our way of life. Get boosted now. Thank you very much. Well, we'll come on to the get boosted now in, in a second. But well, I, I just wanted to say we, 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 are, we are all guilty of allowing this moron to sit there as, as the prime minister giving a spiel, which he clearly has just had notes put in front of him. It's, it's outrageous. It's an insult on the nation. Well, look, let's, put, let's uh, bring Boris back on screen again. I'll g uh, give you a shout in one second, David. And let's just pick some of the key uh, phrases out of this particular uh, speech that he gave last night. Uh, with over half a million jabs delivered yesterday alone is what he claims. Um, so in one day, half a million jabs delivered uh, on a Saturday. Uh, and he said, uh, because I'm afraid we're now facing an emergency in our battle with the new variant o Omicron. Uh, well, are we? Uh, and uh, today we're launching the Omicron Emergency Boost, a national mission unlike anything we've done before in the vaccination pro program to get boosted now. Uh, and that uh, get boosted now and Omicron Cron Emergency Boost probably should have a trademark uh, symbol beside them because uh, they're definitely brands. Uh, to hit the pace we need, we'll need to match the NHS's best vaccination day yet and then beat it day after day. It will mean some other appointments will need to be postponed until the new year. So it doesn't matter whether you've got cancer or whatever it happens to be, uh, that's all being pushed down the road and you may get looked at at some point once this booster campaign is finished. 
but if we don't do this now, a wave of Omicron could be so big that cancellations and disruptions like loss of cancer appointments could be even greater next year. So here is the uh, brand, uh, Get Boosted Now. This is being pushed out uh, by the NHS at the moment. Uh, there you go. So what are your thoughts, David? This is unbelievable stuff. I mean, the, the, the inconsistencies and contradictions in that little speech. I want to know who wrote it. Seriously, who writes this stuff? He starts off that vaccination, the vaccination program is the key to beating COVID and it works. And then he says, but two doses don't work. We need a third dose. Now, we know actually it's not going to stop there. We've already seen the forms from the government that talk about the fourth dose. So, you know, it, it, it's never ending. Um, we are a great country. We have the vaccines. This seems to be the justification for our greatness now. And then this lame um, advertising speak, get boosted stuff. It's, it, it's very cringy. It, it's very embarrassing to listen to. Uh, it is. Uh, and then that brings us on to uh, uh, some more mainstream media headlines here and uh, booster blitz on a tidal wave of Omicron. I mean, the language, uh, who, who is actually writing the, these headlines is what I'd like to know. And well, this is, yeah. the, no, this is, no, this is Nicola Sturgeon. This is Nicola Sturgeon wrote this headline. She talked, to, she talked about a tsunami of Omicron. Um, so uh, because the... People at the Scottish Daily Mail maybe can't spell tsunami. We've got a tidal wave. Um, uh, so they're repeating that. So that's come straight from Nicola Sturgeon. Again, based on nothing, based on fear, based on fear mongering. This is about convincing people to behave in a certain way. It's not based on anything real. It's not based on reason. Um, and uh, the Scotsman here, um, they're saying race to give boosters to all by the end of the year. Now, we're in the middle of December. So we're talking about, um, it, they say about all, they're talking about 20 million doses in 18 days. And they correctly, the Scotsman here correctly identifies that this policy has come from um, Boris Johnson, they, they picture him here. Some papers are, are featuring uh, Nicola Sturgeon giving her the credit. Uh, it's the same policy, it's just that, that Nicola, uh, Nicola Sturgeon um, tries to put a, a tartan bow on it and take some of the credit. Uh, that's maybe unwise. And then we've got the telegraph here, one million jabs a day in race to avoid New Year lockdown. And this is this is the issue, we're talking about, about 20 million jabs in 18 days. Now, this this I find very concerning because here's the problem. We know that the that the uh, COVID jab causes a, a huge a collapse in natural immune systems for the two to three weeks following the injection. We've seen it graphed. We've got a, we've, we've we've discussed the, the the mechanisms that causes that causes this. We've seen it reflected in care home deaths. Uh, we've, we've seen it reflected in, in excess deaths of each cohort that's vaccinated as the vaccination programme continues through the country. So there's no doubt that the COVID vaccine is causing excess deaths because of the effect it has on the immune system, notwithstanding any other adverse reactions. Now, if we are going to vaccinate, uh, as they call it, um, 20 million people in 18 days, and we're going to end up with one third of our population simultaneously having a very impaired immune system. 
What does that do to public health? I, I, I don't know the answer, but it, it could be catastrophic. Well, well, sorry, David, you do know the answer. It's going to destroy public health. And this, of course, is the pattern that we're now starting to see. And we're starting to see the evidence for this uh, coming out in those vaccine adverse reactions, which the government simply, government and the MHRA simply won't talk about. Uh, but aside from that, uh, you know, shutting down GP surgeries, uh, that which is effectively what they're talking about for the next uh, two or three weeks, yeah. at the very least, uh, and the the, the roll-on of, of disaster that that causes uh, also has a massive public health impact. Now, uh, of course, Boris uh, isn't having it all his own way for uh, for in terms of the uh, the various legislation that he's tried to to push through um, and. Uh, and particularly with respect to vaccine passports. Uh, here's a little clip of Steve Baker, MP, speaking to Channel 4 News. Uh, I think it was yes. Mr Baker, why are you opposed to the new restrictions, the Plan B restrictions? It's absolutely essential now that we create the kind of society that's worth living in. I'm determined that that does not mean living under minute and frequently changing rules. And that's why I'll be voting against extending mask mandates. I'll be voting against vaccine passports and I'll be voting against mandatory vaccination as a condition of employment in the NHS. But are you worried, not worried about the data from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine saying that we could see tens of thousands of deaths if we don't have these restrictions? Well, let's be really clear what they've published. They've published modelling, and I've had a lot to say about the models. Unfortunately, they're very often based on assumptions which are wrong and pessimistic. And if people go to the Spectator's data website, they can see very clearly that these models time and again are far, far too pessimistic and wrong, but the costs on people's lives are very, very real. What's your concern? Is that Plan B is only the start? There could be future lockdowns? Well, we're already seeing that rumour, and this happens time and again. We get drawn into these things bit by bit with shifting goalposts, and they just won't do for the British people. So I think that was a fair comment from Steve Baker, MP, and... Uh, uh, and certainly uh, Sajid Javid uh, this morning was saying, well, no, there aren't going to be any more uh, restrictions, any further restrictions before Christmas. Boris Johnson saying, actually, I'm not going to rule, uh, rule that out at all. Uh, but here is uh, Marcus Fish, um, Tory MP, um, and he was uh, adding to what Steve Baker said there by saying, uh, we're not a papers please society. This is not Nazi Germany. It's the thin end of the authoritarian wedge. So again, uh, fair comment, although I'm sure he's getting quite a bit of criticism for bringing Nazi Germany into the whole discussion. Uh, but look, Marcus Fish uh, might be doing the right thing on this particular vote, but has he been doing the right thing on recent votes? Well, not entirely, because my understanding is he voted for the Covert Human Intelligence Criminal Conduct Act, which uh, allows various government agencies to commit criminal acts uh, in the course of gathering intelligence uh, on, well, on what? Uh, and uh, he also voted uh, for the Police Crime Sentencing Courts Bill. So far, it's still only at committee stage in the House of Lords, but uh, he has uh, supported it so far. Um, and so the question then is, will he be supporting the Online Safety Bill? Will he be supporting the Counter-State Threats Bill? Uh, Marcus Fish seems to be saying the right things with respect to, to lockdown in this case, but uh, I think a lot of pressure needs to come on him. Uh, to make sure that he votes the right way uh, in these future bills, which are all enabling bills, uh, which will create enabling acts uh, and will form the, di the dictatorship effectively.
And I think we could say, we want to be kind to him, maybe, just maybe he hasn't sat down and thought through these bills in order to see where they lead. And I think this is a problem with a lot of the MPs. They rush, they're rushing through their day and their lives like many people, and they're not spending the time to join the dots to see what this policy is really heading towards. Uh, now, on Friday, uh, we had a segment, uh, well, let's put this on screen, uh, talking about Boris's parties and also talking about the uh, the alleged uh, pseudo uh, press conference which took place. And we made the point that this press conference that was an ITV News uh, exclusive was supposed to have taken place uh, before Christmas in 2020, but that, that in fact that particular stage in that particular room uh, had not been created uh, as a result of a £2.6 million refurbishment until March 2021. So we were asking, how did that how did that event take place? We said, well, one possible explanation is that the room was in fact ready uh, at Christmas, but simply wasn't used until March. I find that highly unlikely, but it's a possibility. Uh, or there's something else going on here, some kind of uh, uh, perhaps leadership uh, effort going on, a campaign, shall we say. Uh, and we uh, made the point that then uh, there was the issue of the parties themselves. Now, this uh, Mail Online head, uh, headline is not relevant to this discussion, but further down this article, as the Mail is wont to do, uh, they published this um, picture showing four parties that were allegedly taking place, uh, which the Mail is suggesting are, were illegal, one on November 27th, uh, one December the 18th, one November the 13th, and one just labelled December. Uh, and uh, so our point really was, uh, are these or were these illegal? Um, and I've had a few emails back because my point here was that uh, Boris didn't put London into, and the country, in fact, into tier four until the 19th of December. So if the party took place on the 18th, then how was that illegal? Well, uh, a number of people wrote to say, well, one possibility was that, in fact, London was in tier three at the time. Uh, tier three was very high alert. Uh, around one in three people with COVID-19 have no symptoms, uh, said the press release at the time. So we'll be spreading the virus without realizing we must all take action to protect each other and our hospital capacity. But if you look at the uh, what the NHS, what the government uh, was pushing out about tier th uh, three, it doesn't say anything about uh, work and business other than everyone who can work from home should do so. It doesn't say anything about meetings uh, in a work environment or parties in a work environment. It talks about large events at the bottom right there and says events should not take place, but it's headlined large events. It's not headlined events of six people or more or events of 20 people or more. So I'm not buying the tier three uh, um, reason for this, these parties being illegal yet. Um, until I see a bit more. I don't remember anything at the time about uh, uh, gatherings and meetings, shall we say. Let's just call them meetings because at the end of the day, there are plenty of meetings going on, I'm quite sure, at the time. Now, another reason that was suggested to me uh, was this, uh, the rule of six. Um, and of course, the rule of six uh, certainly made it illegal for, any, but for more than six people um, to gather indoors and by the time of December the 18th, outdoors as well. But the fact of the matter is there was a specific exclusion uh, with respect to the rule of six for workplaces. Uh, and so there's no limit uh, under the rule of six uh, with respect to workplaces. 
So I don't know yet still what's going on here. Um, I'm certainly throwing out uh, some suggestions that this that there's that these parties were not actually illegal uh, and that that uh, um, there's more work to be done to actually identify what would have made them illegal at the time but it wasn't the fact that Boris put uh, everybody into tier four one day after the December the 18th party was supposed to have happened. This is a key bit, Mike, isn't it? We're not sure of anything we're told anymore. We don't know whether real news is being reported by the BBC and the other mainstream papers, or it's some fabricated story in order to achieve a political objective. Well, let's, let's move uh, back to the Daily Telegraph article. This is the one that... Uh, David uh, commented on about the jabs just a few minutes ago. Well, I also saw this uh, headline um, from The Telegraph, uh, but I was more interested in what was underneath it because there was a little subheadline here, PM in talks to hire hard man Crosby, ally to run number 10. And I found this a fascinating headline that we have a person being brought in to run number 10, because I don't see a lot of democracy in that. Is this the wonderful Linton Crosby, by well, any chance? Well, <laughs> let's have a look at uh, uh, what, uh, what they talk about here. So it's a hard man uh, who's going to be brought in to run number 10. And uh, if we just take a couple of the excerpts, I'm sorry this is a little bit difficult to read, but we'll take you through it. Boris Johnson is in talks to appoint a senior ally of Sir Linton Crosby, the election guru, uh, to be his number 10 enforcer as he attempts to see off a, a series of threats to his leadership. So we've now got, I've called him a moron, which I think is reasonable. We've got a moronic prime minister who is now going to bring in enforcers if the uh, democratic system of this country attempts to remove him. The prime minister wants to hire David Canzini, a director at CTF Partners, Sir Linton's firm, who has known Mr. Johnson for more than two decades to be his new chief advisor, the Daily Telegraph can disclose. And it goes on to say, allies of the prime minister hope Mr. Canzini can be appointed before what could be a tense meeting on Wednesday between Mr. Johnson and his backbenchers, who are furious at a series of own goals that have damaged the party's popularity. Mr. Johnson is facing a difficult week with as many as 80 Tory MPs expected to rebel against plans to impose COVID passports in one of a series of votes in the Commons tomorrow. So when MPs finally stand up and try and do their job, the uh, Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, is going to bring in an enforcer to make sure that he can crush any democracy that's left in this rotten parliament. Uh, so if we carry on through, Mr. Kanzini, a former director of campaigning for the party, was tipped for the role a year ago when Dominic Cummings, Mr. Johnson's former chief advisor, resigned. If Mr. Canzini takes the role, it will go some way to alleviating concern among Tory backbenchers who have been calling for a, quote, grown-up, unquote, advisor to help Mr. Johnson. So the party itself, Mike, recognises that we don't even have grown-ups running the country. This is scary stuff, but it gets worse. One Tory MP said of Mr. Canzini, he's an effing hard man. He can provide advice in a very direct way. Well, you don't provide advice in the direct way of the F word. This is about an enforcer. This is about bringing threats into the Tory party. 
to make sure they can control it. And if we follow through this line, I was aware, have been aware for a little while, that uh, we've also got another new man on the scenes. And the new statesman here has got a uh, terrific article, The Anti-Cummings, How Dan Rosenfeld Became Boris Johnson's Chief of Staff as a product of the Whitehall machine and a friend to Labour and Conservative governments, Rosenfeld embodies much of what Com uh, Cummings repudiated. So here we get a hint that the uh, party political system is over, really. That's just show for the public. But behind the scenes, we've got these people. Let's have a look at Dan Rosenfeld's CV so we can understand what he really is. Uh, well, he went to Manchester Grammar School. Uh, he then went to a kibbutz in Israel, and he did. he's done this repeatedly um, between the ages of 10 and 25. That's the youth movement reform Judaism. Uh, he then went off to University College London to study German. And uh, from there, he hopped straight into his first job in 2000 as a policy advisor to the Treasury. I'm watching your face, you David, do. as you do. And uh, in 2005, he was budget manager of the 2012 London Olympics. Uh, 2007, he was principal private secretary uh, to the Chancellor Alastair Darling. And in 2011, he suddenly leaves the civil service and becomes one of the, one of the directors that should be at the Bank of America, as you do. Uh, having done German at university. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? So let's stay with the man, but come in from a different angle because uh, we'll come to the Huffington Post here. Ex-investment banker Dan Rosenfeld is Boris Johnson's new chief of staff. So when we see Boris Johnson unable to put two words together or talk coherently about uh, the state of the nation's health, um, who, who's speaking to us, Boris, or is it perhaps Dan Rosenfeld? Uh, so what did the Huffington Post say? Well, it says former Treasury official and top investment banker for Bank of America will run Downing Street for Boris Johnson. So Boris is not running the country, David. Uh, we can see that we've got a banker here, very special man brought in. Uh, but this article tells us a little bit more. Rosenbell's most recent role was as head of the strategic advisory firm Hacklett. Uh, let's highlight that because it's just one word, but we pick up on these things. And it says as man managing director for investment banking at the Bank of America, he could have valuable insight as Britain bids to close the US-UK trade deal. So before I just go on to Hacklett, David, it's very clear that the politicians now are completely, uh, they're either brought in as puppets or they're sidelined behind the scenes at least, while we have corporate people who've been brought in to run the country to their entire satisfaction and their entire policies. And corporate bankers um, as, as well seems to be uh, the key career move if you want to end up running the country. Um, but, I mean, he's been at this for a year. It's, it's not going well, really, is no. it? Uh, we haven't we haven't had any experience of him speaking out directly, so it's very difficult to know what we're dealing with. What does he believe? What does he think about Britain? Um, who is running the country? It would be nice to know. Well, I think uh, we we're going to get deeper, deeper and deeper, deeper and deeper, and better and better insight into who's running the country. Here's Hacklett. If you, people haven't seen it, 
Go online, research it for yourself. Let's have a look at what they say. They say they advise decision makers on opportunities and risks facing their businesses, not doing so well on risks around uh, COVID-19 or Omicron. Uh, our clients trust us with their most important commercial issues and value our discretion and independence of thought. Uh, they've been going for more than 25 years and they're working uh, with the world's top five corporations in every major sector globally and 40% of the world's largest companies by market capitalization. So these people have got a finger in the pie everywhere. And then it gets interesting because we can have a look at the people. And here we've got the chairman, the Lord Dayton, chairman of Heathrow Airport and the Economist Group. So if you think you're going to buy the Economist to find out the truth about what's happening, well, maybe the truth is a little bit of a murky pond. Uh, but let's come into this one here because... Uh, We've got the chairman of Unilever. Um, oh dear, what have we got here? We've got um, Professor Sir John Bell, chairman of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Global Health Authority. And if we take you over to the other side, Sandy Peterson, former Group Worldwide Chairman Johnson & Johnson and director of the Microsoft Corporation. So these are independent people, Mike, you'll understand. Ideal to uh, get involved with the government uh, on it goes. So uh, another name caught my eye down here, Sir Ian Loban, former director of UK GCHQ. So they're just a little advisory company working across the world. And if we have a look at their good works, it's good to see that uh, here uh, we've, sorry, pop back to this one. We've got uh, NSPCC Rebuilding Childhoods Board. So lots of good stuff. Who are these people? What are their true agendas? We don't know. But let's hop back to the new statesman. And uh, one of the colleagues said they people did wonder whether or not uh, he'd gone off to do something a bit top secrety. And uh, this one, after five years at Bank of America, Rosenfeld joined Hacklett, a Mayfair-based private intelligence agency founded by former MI6 officers. Hacklett has a reputation as a retirement home for former intelligence agents, but also recruits from the worlds of government and business. And it's from this secret, uh, secretive company and reportedly on the recommendation of Hacklett's chairman, the conservative peer Paul Dayton, that Rosenfeld has emerged as Boris Johnson's new chief of staff. David, very quickly, I can see you uh, indicating there. When when you go on these um, explorations, Brian, I'm I'm googling in the background. So I picked a different name, Varun Chandra, who who is the um, the the operations uh, director, I think they call him. Uh, so he 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 runs things uh, day to day, managing partner. Sorry, he's called the managing partner. Uh, initially, he's, he's a University of Oxford graduate. Initially trained at, yeah, you've guessed it, Lehman Brothers. Why do they always come from Lehman Brothers? Uh, and he then went on to uh, uh, help build a regulated advisory firm for former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair. Oh, it's a small world, isn't it? And uh, he's also uh, co-founded a merchant bank with a private family investment company and advised uh, former UK Foreign Secretary on business and economic issues. I wonder who that was. Um, so there we go. It's very, very much an insider game. Lehman Brothers and Tony Blair and um, yep, uh, so Bill Gates and all. 
uh, and party politics utterly dead. They may be talking one day as a Conservative, but behind the scenes they're sleeping with the Labour Party or uh, vice versa. So let's just finish this little section. Back to the new statesman here. Said Rosenfield's knowledge of the so-called deep centre, the most important decision-making across the institutions of government, is widely considered his greatest asset. Specifically, officials mentioned his familiarity with the inner workings of the Treasury from which everything else in government flows. So that really answers your question that these boys are in bed with the unaccountable world banking cartels and we can see who's running it. But thank you very much to a viewer uh, who sent me this tweet. And this was because No More Lockdowns UK uh, had put out in a tweet. Hold on a second. Is this a young Boris Johnson speaking at a World Economic Forum Davos Young Global Leaders event? Surely not, because Klaus Schwab, its founder, wrote a book called The Great Reset. And if we join those uh, those dots, that would make us conspiracy theorists. So what the person is quite rightly pointing out is that when we say who's handling um, Boris Johnson, uh, we know that uh, the World Economic Forum is in there. And if you want details about how many people uh, Klaus Schwab has selected as future leaders, have a look at uh, taraBlue.com website, where there's some very, very uh, detailed information. And lastly, especially for you, David, uh, let's go back to 2000, where um, our old friend Tony Blair uh, and an interesting picture of him talking lovingly in the ear of David Cameron. Uh, What did Tony Blair said? He said, the prime minister has a vision of a new Britain. Central to this vision is the creation of a new class, a new elite placed in positions of authority who will propagate the new spirit of the age and spread the principles of the third way across Britain. I'm going to suggest to our audience today, that's exactly what is now operating. We can look at it and call it globalist fascism. Uh, But one thing's for sure, the party, the parties are dead. Okay, we need to move on. So uh, if uh, you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to join us there. And if you're watching the UK Column News and uh, and our other output, uh, including written uh, for free, then uh, we do need your financial support. So please, uh, if you can possibly help us out, that would be fantastic. Uh, also share our material that you find on the various platforms while we're still on them. Uh, now, I'd just like to mention that uh, at this point, uh, I think we've got to say that we can't guarantee Christmas delivery if anybody is uh, wanting a hoodie. Um, thank you very much to everybody that's bought one so far, but uh, we're at the behest of our suppliers. And uh, so uh, we have lead times there that uh, I think mean we can't meet any make Christmas uh, for, for any more orders. Yeah. Um, And uh, I want to say thank you very much to everybody that took part in the Doctors for COVID Ethics uh, uh, Symposium on Friday evening. Uh, I think it's had something like 170,000 views so far. It it has been an extremely popular event. Um, And uh, uh, I think it was spectacular. You, of course, took part in that, Brian. It, It was spectacular. And of course, the evidence that came out from the first two speakers who were looking at Sorry, it's a, it's a dark subject. Tissue samples from autopsy of people who've died having had the vaccination and also eye problems. 
uh, where we were seeing detailed slides of eye problems as a result of vaccinations. This was irrefutable evidence, the minimum of which is that the government should be investigating all the logged MHRA yellow card vaccine adverse reactions. Now, if anybody wants to find that, uh, the video for that, uh, just have a look at the front page of the UK column website. There's a huge big uh, link there for it. Um, you can find it very easily. Okay, so big success. And on the subject of MHRA, uh, David Noakes still locked up in prison. I said to myself this morning, wow, when I opened to look and see how his GoFundMe was, we're nearly at £40,000. Remember, the target is £50,000. So if you haven't donated, uh, please do so, because, of course, David Noakes absolutely challenging the uh, MHRA on its uh, bias towards the global pharmaceutical companies. David would love to receive Christmas cards. If you can manage to send him one, the address is there uh, on screen, and that would be very much appreciated. And also just a quick ad that we've got uh, a little interview that I did with Debbie Evans, former NHS SRN nurse, um, on the subject of MHRA. We're calling it Unmasked Part One, and that will be up in the next couple of days. Also, big thank you to the uh, viewer that uh, said we've been watching Heart Publications, Victory for Rights of Parents Over Children's Jabs. And very, very nice to see that in their very detailed, well-written text, uh, there is a mention of the uh, UK Columns Yellow Card Database System. Uh, Mike's a big, uh, a big uh, tick for the UK Columns efforts there. And further down in the, te in the text, it also mentions the UK column uh, for the uh, excellent reporting we've done on the subject of COVID-19 of vaccines. Okay. Uh, okay, David, let's uh, move back to the BBC then. And uh, well, where do you start? Well, from excellent reporting on uh, the COVID crisis to the BBC, the extreme opposite. Uh, this is by David Robson. Um, it's BBC Future, and it is deeply funny. Uh, he says, researchers, no, it's science, Mike, researchers. Researchers have uncovered the best way to discuss the benefits of vaccination with someone who's unsure. Here are the do's and don'ts of these tough conversations. What's the best way to discuss? Well, turns turns out you have to talk to them, Mike. I mean, uh -huh. this is this is fantastic news. Uh, so he starts off with um, I, I just love every bit of this. Um, so he talks about initially how we've now had fifty five point eight percent of the global population have had at least one dose. Doesn't bother about saying that one dose is, means you're unvaccinated in accordance with how they're now measuring things. Doesn't go into that. Uh, but he just says, "Isn't this fantastic?" And then goes on. Despite this enormous uptake, it's also likely that you will know at least one person, because we're only talking about small numbers, at least one person in your family or friendship group who's not yet received a vaccine through personal choice rather than lack of, avail lack of availability. These people are often characterised as fervent anti-vaxxers who willingly reject science. Don't you just love? I mean, it's not subtle stuff. Uh, and we are sometimes told that, that any attempt to engage in discussion is simply a waste of breath. But the truth, of course, is more complicated. It's certainly that some committed conspiracy theorists are intent on spreading misinformation. But these small but highly vocal groups do not represent the majority of people who have yet to take up the vaccine. Um, and uh, it, in reality, many of the vaccine hesitant are undecided. 
And scientists say talking to him, now the BBC couldn't figure out for themselves that if you want to persuade someone of your point of view, you talk to them. No, they, that's, that's too complicated for the BBC these days. Scientists say talking to them can help. Um, uh, appraise the evidence. Uh, it isn't just governments and health officials that can do that. Social cues are crucially important, says John Cook, a cognitive scientist at George Mason University in Virginia. Interesting location. So letting uh, our social networks know about their views can be influential. Do you think, gentlemen, before we go on here, they're worried that they're losing the argument on social media? Uh, the because this is now an... <laughs> the answer Sorry. to that question is that they are deeply worried. But of course, we know that one of the most vaccine hesitant groups are now people who've had one or two vaccines and they're saying they are not having another one. So this is a very interesting uh, little rabbit hole the BBC's gone down because some of the most fervent anti-vaxxers are now people who've been vaccinated, especially if they've suffered adverse reactions. Yeah, it's always been this way that the, the anti-vaxxers are former pro-vaxxers who have learned the hard way the, the, what the risks are. So the BBC continues with a guide to how to talk to the anti-vaxxers, right? One, pick your battles, right? Which I must translate as, don't argue with someone who really knows the data because you'll lose. Two, I love this one, be humble. It's important to have a two-way dialogue uh, when we listen with empathy and genuinely seek to understand uh, their, what their objections are, says Cook, who recently authored a free COVID-19 vaccine communication handbook, which the BBC are pushing. Trying to change a person's mind by making them feel, feel stupid is not a path to success. Um, I, I don't think these boys are going to be making anybody feel stupid. Uh, they then say, make it personal. Um, and, they, um, and they then have a long quote to actually tell people what to say. And it's full of lies, incidentally. Um, they're, they're talking about one in 10 people still having COVID-19 uh, symptoms uh, three months later. It's, it's nonsense, right? Citation required. It's all, it's all makey-uppy stuff. Uh, and then they say, describe the, the methods beneath misinformation. So we then go into relative risks of catching COVID-19 compared to the vaccine. Now, this is a very interesting point they raise. We've been asking the MHRA about the relative risks of COVID-19 versus vaccine adverse reactions since June. And of course, we've not received a reply. I wonder why that is. So there we go. That's the BBC's guide to how to uh, program someone to want a vaccine. Uh, good luck with that, lads. And I'll, I'll just add to that little section that uh, a few people pointed out to me, this uh, mail headline, Boris Johnson blast at BBC over Partygate. Can we pop that one on screen? Uh, there we are. Um, PM tells friends uh, the frivolous ven Vengeful Partisan Corporation had, quote, neglected its primary duty to focus on the COVID-19 booster jab rollout. So there you have it, without any doubt that the BBC is simply the government propaganda arm. And they're getting a little bit of a telling off here because they strayed off the propaganda. Yes. Okay, uh, well, good news, everybody. Um, NHS, Test and Trace, Deloitte and Accenture have won a £100 million contract in long-term software and support deals. So what's this article from publictechnology.net saying? Uh, the NHS, Test and Trace scheme has 
signed four long-term contracts for software services and business support uh, that could potentially see more than £100 million spent with uh, Deloitte and Accenture. Uh, this programme now forms part of the recently established UK Health Security Agency. Uh, each engagement came into effect on the 29th of October. It lasts for an initial period of 18 months plus two possible one-year extensions, which you could take the contracts to an ultimate end date of April 2025. Uh, the first two contracts respectively relate to platform governance and integration delivery uh, for the digital and management systems that underpin the delivery of both PCR and lateral flow testing services. And across the four contra contracts, a total of 111 million pounds could be spent over the next three years, three and a half years, uh, with 67.2 million going to Deloitte and 43.9 million going to Accenture. So uh, how could you go wrong with that? <laughs> I'm just going to stay silent on that one because we see these vast amounts of money pumped into all of this software around the whole thing. But of course, we come back to the adverse reactions where all the data is collected over a million and there's no analysis of that data at all. So the whole thing is a lie. It's a scam. OK, uh, Guido Fox here asking the question, where's Maggie? And this is a very good question. Uh, and who, who, are, who are they talking about? Well, of course, Maggie Thrupp who is the vaccines minister and is nowhere to be seen, and in fact hasn't been seen anywhere since the 2nd of December. And she's got COVID, Mike. Uh, well, possibly, but uh, hasn't been seen since the 2nd of December, uh, where the audience laughed at her on social media. Um, and so the question is, is that why she disappeared? She can't handle uh, the audience derision. And that's why they're bringing an online homes bill to make sure that, that politicians... That doesn't happen not... again. So... <laughs> Uh, instead, of course, we've had Education Minister Nadim Sahawi uh, taking the front line, but he used to be the vaccines minister, so perhaps he's, uh, yeah, probably not. Uh, and But also Sajid Javid, and interesting, interestingly, uh, Sajid Javid uh, said that he is personally running the JAB programme. So, um, David, I wonder where Maggie has gone. I've no idea. I mean, you, you have to feel sorry for someone who's not... Not a natural liar being put into this position. Um, I, she's not saying I'm personally running the vaccine program because uh, I mean, what does that mean? Um, she's not. She's not standing up there and looking all confident. She's she's actually just a normal human being, and it's all gone horribly wrong. You got to have a bit of sympathy for someone in that in that position. Of course, what she should find is a spine and resign. Uh, and stop uh, assisting in uh, afflicting the British public more. But uh, uh, as far as Mr Javid and his, his commanding presence is concerned, uh, this does not make me feel safe. Uh, no. Yeah. But at least Rod Stewart wrote a song about her. Maggie. Yeah, Maggie, OK. OK. Well, <laughs> sorry. sorry. Uh, OK, so where does that take us then? Um, just uh, briefly mention that uh, another, you know, another weekend, another rally, another mass rally. So uh, in this case, RT reporting on Twitter that uh, the Czechs have rallied en masse against mandatory uh, COVID vaccination. Um, go and have a look at that if you feel so inclined. Um, OK, David, let's move on then to the career and uh, businesses across Tayside and Fife calling for support after COVID guidance sparks wave of cancellations. So uh, people not going for their parties then? Well, yes, and there's a very good reason because Public Health Scotland, uh, their director 
um, and Mr. Nick Finn, Director of Public Health, he said that uh, people should cancel the Christmas parties because uh, Omicron is going to get you. Uh, and this is necessary in order to protect yourselves. Save yourselves, cancel your Christmas party, and enough people did. And these are the pubs and restaurants are now suffering, uh, once again, small businesses being driven to the wall. Um, there's been a chain of cancellations. The courier goes on to explain some of this. Um, uh, so, f firstly, uh, Steve Robin Robertson, who runs a View restaurant in Wormit near Dundee, uh, he's he lost £5,000 in cancellations right away when this announcement happened. He said it starts off with one person not coming, then another, then more. Two of them were isolating, but the other six they just said they just weren't comfortable coming out. So this is the reaction that it's, this is getting in people. It's making them feel anxious. Uh, so people's thought patterns have changed in terms of getting more jittery and more anxious about coming out because of the comments from the First Minister last week. Uh, uh, it then goes on, Quote, we've lost one in January as well, a birthday party. Party. She said she just didn't want to do it. As she didn't want to invent, invite lots of people and then have 15 people turn up instead of 50. So it, everyone's getting jittery. No one knows not only what they're going to do, and they're not comfortable in public, they're not confident of what their friends and neighbours are going to do either. And this is this, this uh, anxiety once again being stoked. And once again, enough people in our fine country are falling for it and are feeling the, feeling the fear. Uh, and this takes us on then to New Zealand and the New Zealand Herald uh, COVID-19 Delta outbreak. Dunedin nurse referred to nursing council after online threats to attack vaccination buses. Yes, I, I thought this was a, a good example from gentle New Zealand of how people who are speaking out against this uh, are being portrayed. Uh, which is borderline terrorist seems to be the, the, the line they're going down. Uh, multiple agencies are investigating the registered Dunedin nurse who posted a video on social media declaring war against COVID-19 vaccinators and calling medical professionals uh, taking part in the vaccine her enemies. Uh, and they did, a, they did a freeze screen to capture an image from her video and if you look at how they managed to freeze the screen, they made her look as scary and insane as possible. That was a nice, subtle touch there from the New Zealand Herald. Uh, in the message, uh, Bransgrove called on fellow anti-vaxxers, referring to, to them as the resistance, to organise and prepare to monitor schools every day so they could attack vaccination buses. And it turned up, quote, we will do everything we can to stand in the way of you injecting this poison into our children. Uh, we will rip the bribes from your hands, we will slash your tyres, we will remove the poison from the truck. This is not inciting violence, this is inciting self-defence, especially for our youngest people. Now, um, this is obviously someone who feels extremely strongly, but given the amount of harm that's being done, um, I'm left wondering whether there's anything you could actually say is unreasonable about that, because we know that the children are not at risk of COVID-19. We know that the children are being vaccinated in order to allegedly stop the spread to other people. And we know, and we'll come to this shortly, that some of the children are being permanently injured and in fact killed by the vaccination programme. Now, it depends, I suppose, how you, how you view those facts, but I think facts they are. And people taking a stand um, um, and a non-violent stand against this, when you consider the seriousness of what we're talking about here, uh, is not 
uh, as it's being portrayed here by the New Zealand Herald, uh, are an, an extreme, unreasonable position, but rather one where you can see the logic behind it. Um, it's not, it's not the, the tactics or the approach that, that we would advocate in the UK column, but you have to appreciate that there is, there is a line of reasoning there uh, if you believe that the harm that's been done is, is severe and is unnecessary. Yeah, well, that takes us on then to Dr. Peter McCulloch. Well, this this comes to the to the harm. So this uh, is is a, an expert in uh, a cardiologist, and he's talking about uh, the effects that the vaccine and the uh, COVID nineteen disease are having on the hearts of young people. Now, the myocarditis that occurs with the natural infection is usually those sick enough to be in the ICU, and it's a troponin elevation only. It's very different than the myocarditis that we're seeing with the vaccines, which we'll get to. Uh, the myocarditis in COVID-19 is mild, it's inconsequential, and it's largely a troponin elevation. I don't want anybody to think that the myocarditis of the natural infection is anything like what we're seeing with the vaccines. Exactly. The vaccine produces the inflammatory type process is on the heart. And the vaccine is directly there. Now there's preclinical studies suggesting the lipid nanoparticles actually go right into the heart. The heart expresses the spike protein. The body attacks the heart. There are dramatic EKG changes. The troponin, the blood test for heart injury with the vaccine myocarditis is, is 10 to 100 folds higher than the troponin we see with the natural infection. It's a totally different syndrome about when the kids get myocarditis after the vaccine, 90% have to be hospitalized. They have dramatic EKG changes, chest pain, early heart failure. They need echocardiograms. If the ejection fraction is low, they need medications to prevent heart failure. So vaccine-induced myocarditis is a big deal. And in children, it's way more serious and more prominent than a post-COVID myocarditis. And that's just one other piece of evidence, your well-researched expert medical evidence that shows that uh, the vaccine adverse reactions are serious, that they're not being properly reported, they're not being properly considered. Uh, we can't find out anything from the MHRA that they're considering these things at all. And against the background where the, one of the most notice, noticeable features of COVID-19 was the fact that it did not affect children, um, having something that's, that's causing that sort of heart injury, um, where's the outrage? Yes, and uh, well, if you want more information on that, do watch the first session of the Doctors for COVID Ethics Symposium, um, because um, the data or the evidence is absolutely clear from from autopsy. So this is this is not just uh, raw data. This is actually looking at the unfortunate people who had died. Yes. Um, okay, David. So let's uh, move back to the Telegraph here. Unvaccinated workers must come clean. Uh, to employers under new COVID rules? So this has been a, a sort of backdoor uh, modification to your rights. Um, having confidentiality regarding your, um, your medical history from your employer was uh, once viewed as the norm. But here, uh, it, as they've now changed the rules for COVID, uh, this is no longer really the case. Um, so it was possible to have um, a whole series of lateral flow tests um, to demonstrate that if you'd been in contact with, uh, with someone who uh, had COVID, that you were not in fact infected. 
um, but that's no longer allowed. Uh, adults who have not been vaccinated with two doses must now self-isolate for 10 days if they identify as coming into close, in close contact with someone who has had the virus. And if you are vaccinated, that's not the same. The, the rules are different. This could lead, the Telegraph writes, this could lead uh, to employees in offices and factories being shamed when they have to disclose that they've chosen not to have a vaccine. The testing and isolation rules will apply regardless of whether the case is Omicron or Delta. Uh, one Conservative MP said that the change in rules would mean that staff now have to lay bare the vaccination status even if they do not want to. So again, this is all a, a, a creeping infringement of rights and um, looking to out people, shame people, identify people who, who have decided not to take the vaccine, as is their right. We are meant to be operating this on a principle of consent. Yes, and uh, that then takes us to Christine Anderson. Christine Anderson is a uh, MEP. Uh, this is for the, the Alternative for Germany, AFD, Alternative for Deutschland. Um, party often characterised as far right, but often we find speaking truth to power, which is a real um, refreshing thing to hear. So let's hear a little bit of it just now. As Heraclit, a Greek philosopher living in the 5th century BC, once said, the truth often evades being recognised due to its utter incredibility. So just because you cannot fathom your government having ill meanings towards you doesn't mean it is not true. And on the other hand, I'd much rather be wrong than sorry. <coughs> but it's up to you. You need to decide what you will do. But keep in mind, whatever decision you do make, you will not only make it for yourself, this decision will be made for your children and your children's children as well. Your decision today will shape the society your children will have to live in. Your decision today will predetermine whether your children will live in a free and democratic society or if they will be subjected to a surveillancing police state. Now, I am determined to leave my children a free and democratic society. And this I will fight for tooth and nail. And should it be the last thing I do on this planet? So be it. So once again, dear government, bring it on. Let's see what you've got. I am not afraid of you. You will not be able to shut me up. You will not be able to force me into compliance. Oh, and one other thing, trying to buy me off? Really? That isn't going to work either. So go ahead, offer me a million dollars. Heck, make it a hundred million dollars. But you know what? Securing a future for my children in a free and democratic society, you could not possibly put a price tag on that. So when it comes to my stand on that issue, I would like to put it in the words of Margaret Thatcher. This lady is not for turning. You can bet on that. Thank you. So uh, she was quoting Margaret Thatcher, I'm sure, just to annoy the people in the EU. Um, but the fact that she's having to stand up and you can hear there's a hint of we have now reached the final ditch 
this is the ditch I'm going to die on, um, the hill I'm going to die on, uh, in, in, her, in her voice and in her delivery there, she's seeing the police state coming um, and she's saying that she's not going to comply. Um, it's been more subtly handled in Britain. I don't know how far we are behind. It's certainly more authoritarian on the continent, but I'm not sure that we are much better off here. Uh, we're not. You can you can hear that that you can hear her her determination that that we that she has she is convinced that they are coming to the point of decision where it all has to go on the line now because if freedom is lost it will be lost for generations. Yeah, we're we're not, David, because you know we we have been highlighting for a number of, number of months this creeping legislation that's coming in, which is building this dictatorship around us. So. Uh, you know, in the EU, it may be a bit more uh, overt, but it's certainly it's certainly here as well. Now, uh, another piece of legislation. Then, if we if we uh, bring uh, this little bit of uh, video on screen uh, from the uh, sorry, we'll just bring yeah, that's it. Uh, so, uh, of course, ID uh, for elections is coming. Uh, there is legislation going through Parliament to require it. Uh, well, it's been getting some criticism, and this time from the uh, Commons Public Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee. They're asking the government to stop the passage of the elections bill. Uh, there's a concern that a voter ID requirement will introduce a barrier, preventing some people from exercising their vote. Uh, when requirement to uh, produce photographic identification at polling stations was introduced in Northern Ireland in 2003, uh, the turnout uh, in the 2004 Northern Ireland Assembly elections dropped uh, as a direct consequence, they say. Uh, the process of carrying out elections in the UK, the ease with which members of the electorate can cast their vote uh, and the trust that's shown in and by the electorate in general is an admirable, admirable and crucial tenet of our democratic process. So here's William Ragg from the Public uh, Administration and Constitutional Affairs Committee saying, while seeking to secure UK elections from potential voter fraud, is a noble, noble cause. We remain unconvinced that the scale of the problem justifies the solution. So basically, David, very briefly, um, they, uh, they just don't see the problem there in the first place. And therefore, the, the response uh, is over the top. And of course, if we consider the possibility of voter ID being added to uh, COVID uh, passports, which of course, it's bound to come because if you want to vote, you're going to have to be vaccinated. Um, this starts to become even more potentially draconian. Yes, I mean, it was noticeable how little voter, I, voter fraud there ever was in the UK. I mean, the system seemed to work wonderfully well. And every innovation that's been added seems to make voter fraud more and more of a problem. And the whole thing seems to be getting less smooth as time goes by. It used to be, um, it, it used to work by consent, really. Um, and I, I, can't, I can't remember any claims of, of voter fraud, um, you know, back in the 70s, 80s. Uh, it was sort of unknown then. Yeah, well, certainly uh, no large scale voter fraud. Well, and that article admitted itself in that little clip, it admitted it, it, that, it, that it was very small anyway. So this yeah. is something else being played. Now, David, I, I know that you wanted to mention Jordan Peterson. I had to bring in this that was sent through to me over the weekend. 
Uh, let's pop it on screen because, my goodness, in this picture, there's nearly tongues involved. Uh, but here we've got, uh, uh, as was uh, EU chief Ursula von der Leyen. And, she still oh, is. Well, we'll see. And uh, well, she's in a clinch here with Pfizer CEO Albert Burria. Let's just bring it up on screen. And what can we say? Well, if we've got global politics in bed with global corporations, this is global fascism and pretty sickening to see. Do you think this lady is going to make a political decision having been in the clinch with uh, Pfizer CEO that's not to his advantage or her advantage when they, uh, uh, they are a bit closer? It's outrageous, really. But yep. uh, take us through to uh, Jordan Peterson, David. Yeah, so this is, this is Jordan Peterson back on uh, having had a long period of ill health. He's uh, back touring the world, speaking again. So he's gone back to Cambridge, from which he was banned. Um, and uh, he's speaking out about the, the, the importance of speaking out. So to quote him here, he said, this, is, this isn't a battle for some rights. This is a battle for the heart of the universities. And Cambridge has been a beacon and so is Oxford. You might even say uh, the beacon for the world in such matters. Um, not, that, not that we ever did in some sense, but the scope of technological transformation has broadened substantially. So we can do terrible things or great things. Uh, what are we going to do? Well, I'm optimistic because fundamentally I believe that men of goodwill can prevail. I will discuss that one in extra time. Um, um, and he uh, then, then uh, finishes off his, his uh, statements here quoted by the, the Telegraph. He says that misplaced guilt and hatred for human enterprise and the belief that uh, we're a cancer on the face of the planet and that the planet would be better with fewer people on it, or perhaps none, that's not the rock you build your house on. So he's talking here about the ethos of those who wish to silence him, the anti-human, uh, hate-filled um, uh, disgust that uh, they have for other human beings. Um, so he is starting to get it. He, he's understanding what he's up against. And um, uh, I'm not, we'll come back to his optimistic point and exactly where that goes and where that comes from. But he does understand the nature of the fight and the importance. And if the universities become places where truth cannot speak its name, where you cannot speak your mind, then we do lose something very important. Um, and that having lost it, having lost it to um, um, ide an ideology that looks to deceive the whole time, um, not only do we lose the ability to speak and to think ourselves, but we give a weapon to the other side so they can have intellectual cover for their lies because it will have the, uh, the, the endorsement of the university system um, that we will consider to be still worth something, even though that university system has become corrupt and unable to um, address issues um, fully and frankly. Uh, David, couldn't, couldn't agree more. And of course, we're, we're going to have the politicians um, censor what we can talk about in every way they can. This little clip has been circulating for a few days, but I think we should bring it up on screen. If we, uh, This is Welsh First Minister Mark Drakeford. And um, what he says in this little video clip, he's got a hot mic, hot mic situation. So he's speaking, he doesn't realize other people can hear it. He says, let's hope people aren't bright enough to ask if it's should as in regulation or should 
as in advance. Advice. Uh, sorry, uh, advice. So listen carefully because the audio is a little bit, a uh, little bit uh, blurred on this, but you can hear what he says very. Uh, if you listen for it, let's play it. Let's hope nobody is bright enough to ask. Is that should as in regulation or should it as in advice? They're asking already. Oh shit! I know just across the UK. So when he's told that uh, they're indeed asking that and it's happening across uh, UK, he gives a reaction showing effectively the fear because he says, oh shit. So the politicians know what they're doing. And this, this must mean it's the individual concerned plus the training they receive or indeed the reframing. But uh, we'll leave that one there, I think. Yes. Okay, David, <clears throat> we don't have much time left, but uh, if you just want to uh, uh, take us through this story from uh, Haaretz saying classified docs, uh, as in documents, reveal massacres of Palestinians in 48 and what is really leaders new. Behind a paywall, this is a very good article. Um, it describes um, a whole series of massacres, some of which uh, the audience will have heard of some of which it, it won't um, that, that, that accompanied the, the war of 1948. Uh, we keep coming back to this subject because to get a, a proper understanding of the situation in Israel uh, and, and Palestine and the nature of the problems, um, it's necessary to have some historical perspective. Unfortunately, the, the supporters of each side in this will attempt to silence a proper historical understanding and they'll put forward their own version of the propaganda that paints their side as always the victims and the opposite side as always the perpetrators. And none of this is true. Um, in the particular case of 1948, you will see the pro-Israeli uh, propaganda putting out the view that the, the Arabs voluntarily left their homes or they, they left their homes to make way for the incoming Arab armies and and they, they weren't driven out and there was no terrorism and this is most certainly not true. So this uh, article goes into, amongst other things, um, a, 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 a massacre at a Lebanese village called Hula. And it says, uh, the ministers appear to have been especially perturbed by the Hula massacre. The village was conquered by a company of the Carmeli Brigade, 22nd Battalion, under the command of Shmuel uh, Lahis. Uh, hundreds of residents, the majority of Hula's population, fled, but about 60 people remained in the village and surrendered without resistance. After the conquest, two massacres were perpetrated in two successive days. On the first day, October 31, 1948, 18 villages were murdered, and on the following day, uh, the number of victims stood at 15. Lahis, the company commander, was the only competent who was tried on murder charges uh, for this operation. In his defence, he stated that he'd operated in the spirit of the battalion commander, who told him there's no need to burden intelligence personnel with captives. He was sentenced to seven years in prison. On appeal, the prison sentence was, was reduced to one year. He served it quite comfortably in conditions uh, within a military base. Following release, he was pardoned by uh, President Yitzhak Ben-Zivi. Uh, three decades later, he was appointed Director General of the Jewish Agency. In that capacity, he, he conceived the idea of Jerusalem Day, commemorating the reunification of Jerusalem during the Six Days War, which has been marked annually ever since. So, um, being responsible for the murder of civilians, 
um, not a career disadvantage. And um, just to finish off this piece, uh, Harris finishes with the following. Half a year later, the first Speaker of the Knesset, Joseph uh, Sprinzak uh, appeared before the Parliament's Foreign Affairs and Defence Committee. Uh, mentioned in uh, the meeting were two items that appeared in the press that day, which epitomised the attitude towards acts of murder during the war. One report referred to an officer who, during the fighting, had ordered the murder of four wounded individuals. The second report was about a person who had stolen army equipment. The former was sentenced to six months in prison, the latter to three years. Um, Spitzak said of the event, uh, he was under no illusions, we are far from humanism, he told the committee, we are like all the nations. Um, so it's, we just want to make the point that what happened in 1948 uh, to expel the Arabs from their, their villages uh, was brutal and was terrorism and involved numerous massacres. Uh, that's not to ignore the massacres on the other side. That's not to ignore what happened in the 20s at Hebron or in the 30s during the Arab Revolt. Um, it's necessary to look at the matter in the whole, um, but it's also necessary to stop believing lies and we need to do that. Yeah. Okay, thank, thank you for that, David. Well, just to end off and uh, to get on to a positive note, let's hop from Israel to Cornwall. And a big thank you to this image that was sent through uh, showing the local MP, Conservative MP for St Ives, Derek Thompson, uh, sorry, De Derek Thomas, standing uh, with a group of uh, people with no vaccine passport um, banner in front of them. And uh, really a big thank you to Derek Thomas, Conservative MP, and all the well-informed and we know hardworking people in Cornwall who were speaking out about uh, vaccine tyranny. But I just wanted to say to our audience, is this just a photo shoot with an MP? Well, no, because it's the result of a lot of hard work that's gone on in the background. And uh, we should remember what had to be done before this photo could be taken. There had to be preparation of detailed information and facts. Um, people had to be encouraged to stand up and act. Uh, there had to be the setting up of meetings with the MP in order to talk things through. Uh, there had to be the discussions about the need for action against vaccine passports. And lastly, the MP had to be politely won over to the argument. So I'm going to say that the photo looks very simple, uh, but of course, there was a huge amount of effort went into making that happen. And uh, uh, the, the MP, Derek Thomas, deserves. Um, deserves uh, support uh, for what he's now doing. And of course, we know there are other conservative colleagues who also want to say no to vaccine passports, uh, but perhaps they ought to be paying more attention to Boris Johnson and his new advisors. Um, are we going to, let's see. Yeah, I'll just jump through here. To the last one? Yeah, I think so. Okay, let's, let's do the last one, David. Uh, and uh, if we put that one on screen, um, take tell us about it. Well, this is this is a, a, an interesting comparison here. It quotes Socrates, who says, "I know that I know nothing." And below this, it's quoting Alex Jones. It says, "Look, I know I'm kind of retarded." So this is a point where Alex Jones and Socrates share the same viewpoints, and uh, and uh, clearly have the same basic philosophy, and that doesn't happen every day. So. 
we thought we'd share that with you. <laughs> okay, thanks very much for that. Well, we're out of time, so we'll end today's news. David, thank you very much for joining us. As we can see by the material the UK column is producing, it's ever more clear that we have a full-blown dictatorship establishing itself in UK. And of course, COVID-19 and uh, the vaccine saga, the vaccine passports are a key part of this. Uh, it's very good to see the number of people waking up to the duplicity and lies of our members of parliament. But also we've got to recognise these hidden corporate powers that are now buried deep in Westminster pulling the string. So it's up to everybody to do some research uh, to pull out what's actually happening uh, there in uh, number 10. Uh, we'll be back in a few minutes on the main live stream for some extra. Uh, and otherwise, back at 1pm as usual on Wednesday. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.